Our loving Father, thank you so much that you sent your Son to die for us, that we might be brought into fellowship with you. Lord, please help us to grasp this evening something of what that means. Please help me to speak your words. And please, uh, please soften our ears to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, fellowship. That's a pretty key word in that passage we've just read. And we all have a need for fellowship. That is, friendly association with, and commonality with other people. So, I'm struck by how, how the God of the Bible is presented as a communal God. One of the most touching of Jesus' speeches, in my opinion, is one of his speeches in the Gospels, in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, the opening to his so-called high priestly prayer, in which we hear of the glorious fellowship that the Son, Jesus, had with his Father before all worlds began. In Matthew, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we catch an unimaginably beautiful snapshot of the communal Trinitarian nature of our God. As the Son rises up from the water of his baptism, the Spirit descends on the Son from the Father, who declares his love for the Son from heaven. Even in the opening verses of Genesis, we see something of the interplay between God, his Word, and his Spirit. So I think the message is pretty clear. Our God is a communal God, a God who delights in fellowship. So it should therefore come as no surprise to us that his creation, mankind, all of us sitting here, should be communal creatures. God's first ever self-referential words in the Bible are the words by which he creates mankind. And they are plural. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And this mankind that he creates is plural within itself, as is pretty obvious from just looking around here. Um, he creates the male and female. Unless we should think that this is just a mere chance or random design choice, we are told in Genesis 2 that it was not good for the man to be alone, and so the Lord God makes woman. Again, the message is clear. Man is a communal creature, a creature made for fellowship. But as with all these lovely ideas about God's creation, Genesis 3 comes, and the fall comes. And just as with all of God's other good designs for us, we ruin fellowship. Naturally, as we abandon our fellowship with God, our fellowship with each other is broken. First, we see the breakdown of the marital relationship with <coughs> accusation, blame shifting, and curses in Genesis 3, quickly followed in chapter 4 by the literal destruction of the fraternal relationship as Cain brutally murders his little brother Abel. And is this not the narrative of the Old Testament? Is this not the pattern of the Old Testament? Conflict follows conflict. Betrayal follows betrayal. Disconnection follows disconnection. And often, even when people try to build fellowship, they just end up causing even more trouble. 
Just think of the disastrous alliance that one of Judah's kings, Ahaz, makes with the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. It's an alliance which leads Judah's inhabitants into heinous idolatry and puts them at great risk. Or, or think of Pilate and Herod's twisted friendship over their shared desire to see Jesus die. Now, I think that the issue is, at its very root, one of idolatry. That is, of putting things in a place where only God should be. And this issue is still as prevalent today as it ever was. In a world that's abandoned God, full of people who've abandoned God, we seek to build fellowship with one another upon things that aren't God. As I see it, this has two main symptoms. Our fellowships lack quality and they lack security. So an example from my life, I think, illustrates these two symptoms very well. So in the last half of my school, high school career, um, my best friend was a chap called Rob. Our fellowship was initially based on fairly tame things, like um, both being sort of nerdy, both having a general dislike for the so-called popular crowd, both being interested in Japanese cartoons. Exciting, I know. Um, but as it developed through sixth form and into the early years of university, its basis increasingly became our shared experiences of hallucinogenic drugs, amongst other deeply unsavory things, which I won't share with you here. And so that fellowship brought pain, and it was twisted, where it should have brought joy. It lacked quality. And why? Well, fundamentally because its basis was twisted and painful. By the grace of God, I am now a new man, truly, free of the shackles of those worldly things. But I've also lost my fellowship with Rob. At the very best, it's been reduced to an infrequent exchange of niceties or the odd drink every now and then. But why? Well, because its basis has passed away. So perhaps some of what I've said there rings true with you, perhaps more than you'd like to admit. Or perhaps you think that because your interests and hobbies and circumstances are perhaps a bit more wholesome than were those of my teenage self, that fellowship based on them may have more quality and security. But let me assure you, it will not. Such things fluctuate and change over time. And so a fellowship based on them will fluctuate and change. A fellowship based on coin collecting, for example, um, may last many decades, but it will not have the deep qualities of fellowship that man was made for. Base your fellowships on proximity, and they'll be gone with the removals van. And a fellowship with someone centred on a fiery, passionate attraction towards them. It may feel like it's going to last forever, but trust me, it's not. And, you will, and it may lead you to do things that you'll deeply regret in years to come. And none of these things I've mentioned will last beyond the grave. Often the deeper a fellowship gets, the more we lack assurance of its security. And rightly too sometimes, I think. I mean, too often we've been scorned by people who we love, or we've lost contact with friends who were once our great best friends. Now this often sends us down one of two roads. Some of us, we run headlong into every possible fellowship we can, trying to desperately fill that innate creation-mandated need that I spoke about before. 
whilst others of us become cynical about fellowship and we withdraw within ourselves and we, we don't let anyone close to us. But neither of these techniques deals with the problem. So we have a problem with fellowship. We have a problem relating to each other on a deep level. And, and when we do, we lack security that it will last. And into this speaks John in his first letter, which we have before us now. Fellowship and security within fellowship is not the only theme of this letter, but I would argue that it is the primary theme and it is certainly the theme of our passage tonight. So, the plan for tonight is to look quickly at where this letter comes in the big picture of God's redemption plan. And then we'll look at the structure of the letter as a whole and the themes. Uh, so that we have some grasp on its main thrusts and John's intentions in writing it. And also hopefully this will provide some contextual pointers uh, for you in future weeks as we continue this series. And then finally, we'll zoom in on this passage that we've just read, considering what it has to say to us within the context of the letter as a whole, and how we can review our thoughts and our actions in light of that. I'm afraid I won't be able to cover all the themes presented in the letter, as I will particularly be focusing on fellowship and assurance. But I pray and I trust that each theme will be brought out in turn over the weeks, um, over the weeks to come. By the way, if you, it, this, John's letter, the, f- the first letter of John, is a very short letter. It's only four pages in these NIV church Bibles you've got. Um, but it's packed with juicy goodness. So if you're thinking of doing something devotionally this week, I seriously suggest you just read it all the way through. Maybe, very, maybe a few times, slowly and prayerfully. It's been an immensely nourishing and challenging experience for me, and I'm sure it will be for you too. Anyway... Let's dive in after I drink some water. So bearing in mind all I said earlier about the fall destroying our fellowships and our capacity for fellowships, the first and foremost thing I want to say is that this letter is written after the cross and the empty tomb. This means that Jesus has undone the work of Satan. And so he's opened a way for for those who believe in his name to regain that first fellowship we abandoned, our fellowship with the living God. John, being not only a physical witness to the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, but also an apostle commissioned by Jesus to spread the news about these things with authority, he is joyfully aware of this fact. We also know that Jesus, having made atonement for all who believe in his name, has now formed a new community of which he is Lord, and in which fellowship is present across all normal social and racial lines. John writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's chapter 5, verse 13. So we know that he addresses a subset of this community. So things are looking pretty good. However, we mustn't get too excited, and I can see that that's a bit of a concern for some of you here. Um, Jesus is risen, yes, And the powers of death and hell are under his foot. Yet he's not returned to fully and finally crush them. Indeed, in chapter 2, we read of antichrists who separate off from the apostles, trying to lead believers astray. We, and the original readers of this letter, uh, are in the now but not yet period. 
So we should expect to see warnings and exhortations, beacons of hope for the future, and encouragements to persevere to the end. So now let's have a look at the letter itself. In our NIV Bibles, it's split into paragraphs, which, and although those paragraphs, those visual divisions were almost certainly not present in the original letter, I mean, some of the oldest manuscripts didn't even have word spacing, so. But they do align very well with topical changes in the letter. So therefore, as we read through 1 John, we should be thinking, new paragraph, new thought, roughly. So for example, paragraph 2, which is chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, talks about light and darkness, um, but paragraphs 1 and 3 don't mention light or darkness at all. However, that's not to say that John is just a bundle of unrelated ideas. And that's very, that'd be very easy to think, and, I, and I let me explain why I think that is. So the majority of the letters in the New Testament are written by Paul, as I'm sure most of you are aware. Are aware. So we become accustomed to Paul's writing style, and we expect it when we read New Testament letters. Paul writes in a very linear way. First he explains who he is, and he addresses his recipients, then he lays down the framework for what he's going to say in the letter. And then he sort of proceeds in a very linear premise to conclusion sort of way, moving from topic to topic, generally saying everything he has to say on each topic in one go until he's covered everything he wants to say. And then he, he makes, once he's made all his points, he usually wraps up with some sort of grace and maybe some personal greetings and the letter comes to a fairly natural end. This is not the way that one John is structured, not, not even slightly. Um, John sort of, he cycles around the things he wants to talk about, observing them from different points of view, observing different aspects of them. Often he'll touch on the same aspect multiple times, but he'll say something new about it. Now this might sound a bit disconnected and illogical, but it's often, it's often much easier on us, the readers, as we don't have to remember all his previous points to understand the following points. So as I said before, John divides up into paragraphs, of which there are 33. You can count them if you want. Um, of those 33, I think that 22 of them tell us the difference between believers and hypocrites, between true teachers and false teachers. Six of them give John's reasons for writing, and the remaining five are exhortations to continue in the faith and build each other up. Now, those 22 paragraphs that help us distinguish believers from hypocrites and true teachers from false teachers, they have a great deal of nuance and detail, and I'm not, I'm not skimming over that fact, but I think they have one main thrust, which is this. Those who have been born of God are those who believe what is true and do what is right. So some of the things we'll believe if we are born of God are that Jesus is the Christ, that is God's promised king, that's chapter 2 verse 22 and chapter 5 verse 1, that he is the son of God, that's chapter 4 verse 15 and chapter 5 verse 5, and that eternal life is found in him and in him alone, uh, chapter 5 verse 11. And some of the things we'll do are acknowledge and confess our sins, chapter 1 verse 9, Love our brothers and sisters. This comes up all over the place. I'm not going to say where that comes up because it's everywhere. Um, and thirdly, not continue to live in sin. That's chapter 3, verses 6 to 10. 
So both of these traits, John presents both of them, right belief called orthodoxy and right action called orthopraxy as marks of a genuine believer, both of them. Therefore, he will not allow us to divorce them as some are want to do. Another thing he won't allow us to do is view either orthodoxy or orthopraxy as the means or agent of our salvation. Now, we must remember in all of this that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, chapter 1, verse 7, and that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, chapter 2, verse 2, and that this undeserved blessing is communicated to us by his spirit who comes and dwells in us, chapter 4, verses 13 and 15. And his, new, his spirit gives us new birth. Being born of God, or new birth as I might call it, is the thing that gets us into the kingdom. This letter affirms a fundamental truth of, dare I say it, evangelical Christianity. That, that saving faith is a gift of God. That those who truly believe in the name of Jesus have been saved. They have been born again. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy then follow as inevitable results, but trying to conform to these things in order to achieve salvation is about as, is about as effective as stapling fruit onto a dead tree. So why does John dedicate so much space to holding out this diagnostic standard for believers? Is it to condemn his readers? Certainly it would be easy to read something like um, chapter 3 verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. And for us to tremble in fear because of the things we've done or thought about our fellow believers. But this would be to thoroughly misunderstand John. Just look at the tone of the letter. He refers to its recipients as dear children eight times. He refers to them as dear friends six times. And he even says perfect love drives out fear in chapter 4 verse 18. No, the purpose of this diagnostic he's giving is probably given in the main summary verse of the whole letter, chapter 5, verse 13, which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants to reassure us who believe against the backdrop of false teaching that we do indeed have eternal life. And he wants to help us to stay on the right path. Of course, don't be fooled by people who say, you're saved, so you can act however you like. But also, don't be fooled by people who say, you need to get your act together and make sure that you're saved. Friends, we must walk the line between these two extremes. As with so many aspects of our faith, there is a balance here. And that's why we need to hear both chapter 2, verse 3... We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. One, for when we doubt our faith, and the other, for when we're tempted to sin. So I think it's fair to say that John's big intention with this letter is to bring us assurance. But we may ask, like the overly curious child that keeps asking why, um, why does he want to bring us assurance? 
If he's so convinced that, we, that his readers are saved, then why does it matter to him whether they, whether they know it or not? Why, do, why does he care? Or perhaps you've got a more in-house question. Perhaps you're thinking, what happened to that whole fellowship thing you're on about, Tom? Preaching, that you were preaching earlier. I mean, fellowship's in the passage, Tom. Where did it go? Why have you spent the last ten minutes banging on about assurance when we have a passage that doesn't even mention it? Well, if that is what you're thinking, then you'll be pleased to know that all those things have the same answer. That answer is the key that locks chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 into 1 John as a whole. The answer is the link between assurance and fellowship. So John gives his very first purpose clause in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says that he wants us to have fellowship with him and his fellow apostles, and that their fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think that John's implying we don't already have some degree of fellowship with him. I mean, indeed, as, he, as we know from chapter 5, verse 13, this, this main theme verse, he writes to those who believe in Jesus, those who have eternal life. He also writes in chapter 1, verse 7, that if we walk in light, we have fellowship with each other. So he does acknowledge that we who believe um, have fellowship with him and with one another. I think primarily what he's speaking of is increasing fellowship. And probably also secondarily he's addressing those who don't believe to encourage them into this fellowship. But primarily, in terms of increasing fellowship, if two of us strengthen our relationship, our fellowship with God, then in turn we strengthen our fellowship with each other. This reveals the grand purpose of assurance, I think, because assurance brings us into closer fellowship with God. Let me use an analogy. So a child who is frightened and upset, yet is in its mother's arms, is safe. It's safe. But the mother's not happy with that. She wants to imprint on her child a deep feeling of safety, so that the child will no longer just be safe, but also not be upset and frightened anymore, so that they might grow in their mother-child bond. So too with God. God wants us who are saved to be increasingly sure of our salvation, so that we may increasingly grow in fellowship with him. John recognises that in doing so, we will also grow in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they live in the world and whenever they walk the earth. This is the sublime, brilliant, I'm going to even say delicious, link between assurance and fellowship. And it explains this double motive behind John's letter. But it doesn't stop there. The second aspect of this beautiful link is that our fellowship with each other can actually bring us assurance. This idea underpins a large chunk of the letter. There are eight paragraphs which go along the lines of, if you love your brothers and sisters, you've been born of God. If you do not, you have not. Therefore, through our acts of love, building up our brothers and sisters and increasing our fellowship with them, we actually become increasingly sure that we have been born of God. This brings us assurance, which deepens our fellowship with God, which by extension deepens our fellowship with each other, and now we've come full circle. This is the beauty of a community that is centred around a person, 
rather than just a concept, namely Jesus Christ. This is the joy of having a God who in his very nature is relational. He is Father, Son and Spirit, always has been and always will be. So the answer to the problem that I posed right at the start, the problem of fellowships that are shallow or don't last, is just what we should expect. We need them to be based in God. We need first and foremost to restore our fellowship with God, to restore that creator-creature bond. And then, within that context, we need to root our creature-creature fellowships within that bond. This is why John boldly reminds us that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Son who opened the way back into this creator-creature bond. It's Jesus who solved the problem. Jesus is God's ultimate self-revelation to us in the world. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, Colossians chapter 1, that he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus himself tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Therefore, to have fellowship with God, we must have fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. I think this is why John and his fellow apostles want their fellowship with the readers to be based on Jesus Christ, who's referred to in various terms in this passage by the titles the Word of Life, the Life, the Eternal Life, and the Son. Now, the reason we know that Word of Life and Life refer to Jesus is because these verses echo very well the beginning of John's Gospel, um, which, where they are inarguably used to refer to Jesus. So I think that three particular characteristics of Jesus stick out in our passage um, and they will shape the fellowship that John wants to have with us. Firstly, he is really truly accessible to us. This is what John's getting at when he says that Jesus has been heard, seen, looked at and touched and that Jesus appeared. Jesus came in the flesh. He came, he came in a physical body as a human being. And he provided an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. Chapter 2, verse 2. Because of all of this, all of us here tonight can freely have fellowship with the Father through the Son. Freely, all of us. A second trait of Jesus that sticks out is that he is alive. More than that, he is life itself. Therefore, fellowship with him is going to be like living, like really living, like breathing deeply, like seeing in color, running at full speed, feeling things with our whole bodies, even if we don't experience this now with our physical bodies. And thirdly, Jesus is eternal. He, he is eternal, so fellowship with him is eternal. And fellowship based on him is eternal. In this way, we can even have fellowship with John, the writer of this letter, and with his fellow apostles, because they were united with Christ, and we are united with Christ. And union with Christ is eternal. 
Therefore, if we're in Christ, we have an unbreakable union with them. There's literally no other way for us to have fellowship with people who lived thousands of years ago and thousands of miles away. And there is literally no other way that we can have fellowship that can transcend even death itself and last out into eternity. So, I don't, I know, I know many of you here, most of you in fact, but if, if anyone is here tonight and doesn't know Jesus, if you don't experience that wonderful fellowship with God and the assurance that it brings, then I want to invite you into it. I want to invite you to know the God you were made to know. And to have fellowship within a community like none you've ever experienced before. Now I'm aware that this talk may have brought up more questions than it answered for you. And that's okay. Please speak to me or Dave or Matthew or anybody who looks vaguely like they know what's going on um, <laughs> afterwards. And we'd love to talk to you. And we'd love to get to know you. And we'd love you to get to know us and our Lord. For the rest of us who do believe, who do know fellowship with the Father through the Son, first of all, let's remember that our fellowship isn't just any old, broken, post-fall fellowship. The world will always see us as just another club, a motley group of fellows banded together around our shared love of some dead Middle Eastern guy, uh, a 2,000-year-old book, and, let's be honest, some pretty weird music. But we must never allow that view to become our own. Take John's words in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 to heart, that our fellowship with each other is firmly grounded in the historical fact of Jesus' physical life, death, resurrection and ascension. Remember that through these things, Jesus has brought you eternal life, and that our fellowship is rooted in that. Let's also not be tempted to turn back to our old idolatrous ways of putting things in, in God's place as the basis of our fellowship. That's not to say we can't have you know, shared interests um, with our brothers and sisters or uh, with our unbelieving friends even. We certainly can and we should and we should revel in that. But let's make sure that our fellowships are actually based in and built up in Christ and not in those secondary things. I think that many of us, certainly I, need to seriously consider whether our fellowships in church are really rooted in the eternal word of life who transcends all cultural boundaries or whether we've simply surrounded ourselves with people just like us and left Christ out of the picture altogether. And with the case of unbelieving friends, let's not just be content with that, with simply shallow fellowship that won't last forever, but let's desire to see them come into that deep and lasting fellowship that you can have in Jesus. And finally, let's, let's remember that juicy link between fellowship and assurance. We believe in the name of Jesus, therefore let's be assured of our fellowship with God. Above all, let's be assured of that. And then firmly rooted in him, let's revel in that truth together. And let's let our increased fellowship with God 
increase our fellowship with each other. And dear friends, I won't call you dear children, that would be a bit ridiculous. Um, This week, whenever we do something loving, whenever we do something kind, whenever we refrain from sinning, whenever we hold fast to our faith in the presence of opposition, let's let that be a cause to glorify God and to give him thanks that he's given us new birth. Let's let that encourage us that we have eternal life. And let's let that encouragement draw us closer to God and closer to each other. And by this, you will make John's joy and my joy complete. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you that you have broken Satan's work. Thank you that you have restored our fellowship with you. And thank you that because of that, we can have true and lasting fellowship with each other. Please help us, Lord, to not put things in your place. Help us to have our fellowships firmly rooted in you. And help us to know that we are saved, Lord. And to grow in our fellowship with you because of that. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.